0: Excessive restriction and constantly cutting weight doesn't make you a better climber. It makes you tired. It makes you less strong. It makes you less capable to deal with things mentally.
1: Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show's expert analysis episode on nutrition. As we look back at season two with an expert coach to examine where pros like Matt Fultz, Melina Costanza, Allison Best, and Tommy Caldwell struggle in their nutrition, what they've learned, and what common threads we can identify that'll help you and me to level up in our own climbing. That is what it's all about. That's why I created this format, so that we could look back in this very way and draw some thoughtful conclusions to help us be better climbers. And here to help us decode the pros' secrets is Amity Warm. I'm so psyched, y'all surely know that name as Amity is a rising star in the climbing world making a name for herself on super hard big wall and multi-pitch trad routes, including ground-up free ascents of El Corazon, Golden Gate, and The Free Rider. Oh my gosh, I'm exhausted just saying those words. She's a crusher. But what you might not know is that Amity has her master's in sports nutrition, And at the time of this chat, she was in her final stretch of becoming a registered dietitian. Her experience in two weight-sensitive sports, gymnastics and climbing, adds a really rich dimension to the theory of nutrition, which we dive into here in this episode. And this conversation is just overall a real masterclass in an area that so many climbers, amateurs and pros alike, can find serious advantages if implemented properly. Amity's stoke level is sky high, and we had a ton of fun looking back at season two through this lens of nutrition. And speaking of nutrition, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle is a brand that I love and use, Fizzy Vantage. Fizzy Vantage is the leader in climbing nutrition with more than 50 professional climbers, including today's guest, Amity Warm, now using their science-backed products daily to support their training and climbing performance. As you guys will hear in this chat, Amity holds supplements to incredibly high standards, so if she loves Fizzy Vantage, I think you will too. One of the supplements that we discuss at length in our chat today is collagen, and that's one that I've been using daily for well over a year now and absolutely have seen the results in my overall connective tissue health and my ability to train hard and recover fast. I like to mix their vanilla flavor into my tea. It tastes awesome. And then I'll just do this quick 10-minute finger protocol every morning which sends the amino acids to where they're needed most amity breaks it all down towards the end of today's episode i'm sounding smart right now but i'm just really regurgitating what she told me in today's interview look fizzy products are second to none y'all created by climbers for climbers try it out for yourself you're going to see the difference hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code struggle 15 to save 15 percent off any full price nutrition order The official gear sponsor at the struggle is Petzl. Y'all I've been using Petzl gear for a decade now and I especially love their quick draws. I just started uh, noodling on this project that it might become the 13A proj, I'm not quite sure yet. But anyway, it's a steep climb with these crusty, rusty perm draws on it. And I've just been swapping in my Petzl gin draws for smoother clipping and mostly for peace of mind as I take a million falls at this stage of the process. Petzl makes some of the most clippable and durable carabiners on the market. Each Petzl carabiner design is tested to ensure that it can withstand 100,000 open and close cycles. So solid, so reliable, I love them. Look for Petzl Draws at your local gear shop and pop by Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And lastly, the show is supported by patrons, and it just wouldn't be possible without you all. Then again, if you are a patron, you're not hearing this because you get secret, ad-free episodes delivered to you via a separate pod feed each week, So I guess I'm just wasting everyone's time with this blurb. Sorry, everyone. But hey, you're getting this for free. So hopefully you're not too upset. That said, if you are in a position to support the hard work that I'm putting in here in the podcast slash utility closet, I sure would appreciate it. And I got some amazing perks that'll make it worth your while. I promise you. I'll just tell you more about those at the tail end of this episode so we can dive right in. All right, let's get ready to shake up 7,000 grams of high quality chocolate flavored performance enhancing beta in this chat with Amity Warm. All right. The levels are looking good. I've got my uh, latest delivery of Girl Scout cookies here to keep me fueled on this nutrition episode. I'm I'm so excited uh, that you're here. Thank you for diving into this. Welcome to The Struggle.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, look, before we nerd out and, and really dive into uh, looking at season two through this lens of nutrition, I want to take a, a quick step back. And we all know you as an incredibly talented rock climber. You're performing at the top of your game. You've had such an incredible year. Congratulations. And then there's this other side of you that you post about and and talk about um, a bit, but it's not, of course, as prominent as your incredibly impressive rock climbing accomplishments. And so I want to just set the stage here for the listener and understand a little bit more about your background and your education in the field of nutrition. And maybe first, Uh, understand what drew you to that field in the first place?
0: Well, I was, I think, inspired to pursue a career in sports as a sports dietitian for a number of reasons. But before I transitioned to climbing, a little backstory, I grew up doing competitive gymnastics. So I've been kind of deeply immersed in these weight-sensitive sports pretty much my whole life. I was fortunate to have positive role models around me as a young gymnast, but I still saw the harmful mental and physical effects of underfueling in other athletes. Um, my career gymnastics career ended in a back injury that may have been related to some nutritional deficiencies that were entirely unintentional. And then after diving into the world of climbing, I became even more acutely aware of the negative effects of improper nutrition, both on long-term health and performance. Um, I saw it play out in my own climbing as well as in countless climbers around me. And I've long had an interest in both sports performance and physiology, as well as food and cooking, and kind of seemed like a natural path to take to integrate both aspects into a career. Yeah,
1: I appreciate you sharing that. I think not only is it important to be passionate about what we're doing, of course, but also for you to bring that direct experience from your time in gymnastics now as a climber uh, you, you've seen firsthand, not just through your education, but also through your own journey, the effect that nutrition and, and potentially the detrimental uh, impacts of improper nutrition uh, and diet will have. So that's that's a really nice and very qualified lens to, to bring it from. But also the other side of that coin, of course, is uh, education and background. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your background and, and your studies in the field.
0: Right. So I... Originally went to undergrad, planning to do physical therapy. So that was my like four years of undergrad. Ended up not going into that, had some time out of school for a while, and then eventually decided to go back to school for sports nutrition. So going back to school, that was another like two years of prerequisite classes and then a two-year master's program. So I have a master's in sports nutrition, and then I've done a, a year or like 1,000 hours of, it's called supervised practice, um, but it's part of the process to get your registered dietitian license. So over the past year, I've been doing those 1,000 hours of supervised practice, and that's been in just like kind of three different settings. So a clinical setting, working with like outpatients, but more like clinical side of nutrition, then kind of a like community-based nutrition. So I was helping teach like cooking classes and nutrition education to low-income families that were part of um, a CSA program in Colorado over the summer. Cool. And then most recently, I was actually working with the dietitian for the Phoenix Suns NBA team. So, yeah, really getting to see sports nutrition at the highest level. Um, Very different than sports nutrition in climbing, but a good experience to see kind of that elite level of sport performance yeah what an incredible perspective yeah the final step in that journey is taking the registered dietitian exam which i'm taking in beginning of march and at that point i'll officially be a registered dietitian a little clarification that i think confuses people is dietitian is actually like a legally protected title, so you can only call yourself a dietitian if you've done this, the coursework, the um, thousand hours of internship, and taken this exam. Whereas anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. You could call yourself a nutritionist. The guy next door could call himself a nutritionist. No one
1: would ever refer to me as a nutritionist if you saw what <laughs> it was that I was eating. But, but I think that's really uh, that's 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 super interesting that distinction. So. In essence, a dietitian is like being a lawyer or being a doctor. I mean, it's it is it is a a title that you earn through a degree program and then taking passing coursework, like you would like the LSATs or something Correct. like that, right? Yep. Um, or or the bar exactly. exam rather. Um okay so that sounds really hard so congratulations <laughs> I mean you're new, you're nearly there
0: almost there it's been a it's been a long process
1: yeah but then in that process of course you're gaining such an incredible perspective I mean you're you're kind of coming to the end of the bulk of this process and working with an NBA team I, I'm fascinated by that because it gives you this mirror by which to compare nutrition in climbing uh with nutrition in a sport that you know, is a far more established kind of mainstream billion dollar sport. So I before we dive in, and, and I do want to dive into season two here and, and some key learnings and takeaways for our listeners, but I'm I'm really interested to hear where you feel the nutrition, the dietitian aspect of climbing stacks up and in compared to whether it's an NBA team or just other sports that are out there.
0: Yeah, I think I mean climbing's a little interesting, right? There's not like you don't have like a team in every state that is, you know, competing against each other at that like national or elite level necessarily. Like almost NBA, every NBA team or every NFL team has their own sports dietitian working with them. There's climbing is like a little bit different still on that side, um, but there are a couple of dietitians that work with the USA Climbing Team and work with the IFSC to help like starting to help implement some nutrition education and body weight body composition standards within the ifsc that's like just starting to come around but i think it's a like quickly growing field and i think we're going to see a lot of growth in this niche of climbing dietitian over the next several years
1: yeah, it's interesting. We'll get into this in a second. I'm I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but I I I've found in looking back at this season that nutrition may be the area that has the most opportunity. When I when I look at training, nutrition, tactics and mental game, those are the, you know, kind of the pillars of the Struggle Climbing show and it still seems a little like it's kind of like this wild west or it's a little kind of a bit of the baby the baby pillar almost it seems like still there's still a lot of athletes out there who are climbing at the absolute pinnacle of of the game who are like yeah I don't know I just kind of eat whatever you know it's just totally wild to hear and, and we'll get into this probably a little bit more but I just is that your sense as well because you are one of those elite athletes do you still see so much opportunity whether you're an elite athlete or somebody a weekend warrior to to essentially um level up in, in, I think, maybe considerable ways with a focus on nutrition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is not as complicated as we make it. Like, I think there's so much nutrition information out there that you can read, kind of like training. There's so much information out there. I think people tend to get overwhelmed like in trying to make a plan for themselves. And so they just fall back into whatever habits they've always done. Because that's a lot easier than trying to sort through all this information that's out there. But yeah, I think, I think it's not as complicated as we often make it. Like There's a lot of really simple changes that or tweaks that you can apply to your dietary habits that make a big difference.
1: Oh man, I'm so excited to to jump into this with you, Amity. An entire episode focused on nutrition and how we all can level up and how we can learn good or bad from the pros as you look back on it. So let's go. And first question up here is, where do you struggle, Amity, with nutrition? With all that you know and all that you've experienced, are you struggling still with any aspect of nutrition?
0: Yeah, I guess um, kind of taking it back a little bit again for a little more backstory. Um, I started climbing in college, and the first few years that I was climbing were not really too focused or serious. Really didn't think that much about nutrition or how it related to performance. Um, Again, I wasn't studying it or anything at that point. Um, then once we built the van, so this is like five years ago now and started climbing much more often, I was pushing myself a lot harder. Um, I think to a large extent extent, I didn't really realize how to feel myself adequately and how much I needed to be eating to keep up with the expenditure. Um, like I was trying to eat healthy, you know whatever that means, but probably unintentionally coming up short on energy intake for quite a while. Um, I got like super lean and thought that was probably just part of becoming a real climber. And then after several months of, like I said, of traveling and climbing, that's when I decided to go back to school for sports nutrition. And as I progressed through school and became increasingly serious about my own performance in climbing, I sort of had this weird phase where... I realized I wasn't fueling myself adequately for the amount of physical activity that I was doing, but I was also afraid to change anything. You know, in my Mm. mind, I thought I was climbing well. I thought that being super, super lean, I looked the part of a climber and I definitely fell into this kind of weird relationship with food and exercise where I felt that I had to, you know, earn everything that you eat with enough physical activity. And I think that's not an uncommon theme and high-level athletes and part of that came from a totally innocent place of just like loving to push myself and squeeze out every last bit of energy but I think part of it also stemmed from a pretty negative place of like feeling like low self-worth unless you do everything right which again is like I think a pretty common theme in these like type a high-performing people For sure. Um, so I was in this like weird spot where I could make all the right recommendations to other people about nutrition, but I wasn't implementing them in my own life. Like I thought I was doing fine, but looking back, I think it's like, really, I was just scared to change. Yeah.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Amity. I I really appreciate that. You know, nutrition, uh, maybe alongside the mental game chapter where we deal a lot with fears, um, nutrition is really kind of linked, interwoven with these broader concepts and definitions of one's self-worth and self-image and ego and, and these kinds of things that it really brings kind of an emotional side to this chapter that maybe the training side or the tactic side doesn't quite reach, you know?
0: It's such a bigger thing. Like nutrition applies so much more broadly in our lives than just training, right? Like it's so wrapped up in social and emotional and cultural aspects of life, like it has, like its reach goes so much farther than just your training or whatever, in in terms of how it impacts your entire life and relationships.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we eat to celebrate, we eat to, to feel better when we're feeling bad, you know, like, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so much wrapped up in nutrition and also just the fact that you, who were literally in school with every resource available to, to you know, a, like you had every advantage over pretty much anybody else out there to recognize that maybe you were under fueling or you were in a caloric deficit or, you know, whatever it's it was. And was still hard to change. And it was still hard to change. I mean, that is, it's, it's, at, it's simultaneously a little comforting and also like a little bit concerning because then it, it just, it just shows how hard it is for those of us who maybe don't have the perspective and the resources that you do to to change.
0: Right, or the right people around you. you or... or Yeah, and I mean, I'd reflect, like I'm in a much healthier place with food and fueling and body weight and all of that now, but it is a continual process. And I think that's the way it is for most people. Like it's it's easy to fall back into thinking like that losing weight is the answer to being a better climber. And it's easy to think that, Oh, if I didn't eat that cookie, I would have sent my project. Because I think as humans, we want these quick fixes for hard things, right? We want it to be simple, but it's not. Unfortunately, there's so many other factors that play into performance besides just weight.
1: Yeah. Well, let's it's get definitely, into it. It's
0: complicated. Yeah. It, re-
1: it really is, and and one of the one of my favorite parts about about these kind of capstone episodes here is is being able to look back at climbers that we've seen on the covers of magazines and that are, you know, just again, absolutely crushing it and looking at where they've struggled. And there's no shortage of struggles with these elite climbers when it came to fueling and nutrition. And as you looked back at season two, were you able to um, identify any commonalities, any themes that you saw that, that kind of wove through the season?
0: Yeah. One of the biggest ones, I think, the majority of climbers on the show this season emphasize the fact that excessive restriction and constantly cutting weight doesn't make you a better climber. It makes you tired. It makes you less strong. It makes you less capable to deal with things mentally. But I would, I would say that most people or most of the guests on the show fell first into the trap of losing weight. And then realizing the importance of adequate fueling and the correlation between fueling and strength, which goes back to that, just kind of, it's an ongoing process. You know, you have to, you have to experience these ups and downs to understand what does work for you and what is healthy long-term.
1: Yeah, that's really a big one. And, and again, almost simultaneously comforting to us weekend warriors that uh, the, the most elite athletes in the sport have learned the hard way on some of these things, and and of course, we can benefit from that. So I, I want to dive into that, and I know we're going to dive into that in in a meaningful way here in just a minute, but were there other themes or or was there anything else that stood out just kind of as an overarching concept that you picked up from season two?
0: Several climbers also identified that body image as a climber in comparison to others was a big hurdle or struggle for them, Um Several, several people identified that either feeling like a bigger climber or um, looking a certain way in comparison to other climbers around them was a struggle for them. And then another one was several people identified the benefit of having someone knowledgeable to help guide nutrition choices and provide this kind of objective perspective to their nutrition which is kind of like training, like it's often really helpful to have a coach be able to look at what you're doing and objectively tell you where you can improve. Um, But yeah, several people identified that having a qualified professional guiding their nutrition was really helpful.
1: Yeah. Uh, Shocker, first of all. I mean, it's so funny because it's like so clear in in retrospect, and certainly how you put it there. Like if you're going to work with a coach, you know, why wouldn't you work with somebody who's knowledgeable? Um, with nutrition. Well, I love that, that you laid those out there. I mean, we're, we're talking about kind of restrictive eating or this learning the hard way that lighter isn't better, um, certainly not as a general rule, kind of comparing oneself to others. And then the the last one there about working with uh, professionals. I think that'll be a great way to kind of carry us through this. And so on the, on the topic of the first one, Melina Costanza comes to mind.
0: I had never really been a caloric deficit before. And I think that when you have an energy storage, it can be a lot easier to start cutting and feel like you are invincible and feel like it's just kind of this linear trajectory, um, not realizing that you are basically, this is what how my nutritionist described it, is like you're basically running toward a cliff and you feel amazing and you're sprinting and then suddenly things can just change very, very quickly um, when you reach a point where that energy storage is like completely depleted and suddenly you have no energy and there are a lot of other negative things that happen psychologically and physically after that.
1: So it's interesting to hear that for for a little bit for for Melina, it worked, right? Going into that caloric deficit, maybe that's why it's such an enticing uh, concept for for a lot of us is to say, well, you know, I'm going to try this and all of a sudden it works. You get that like positive feedback in a sense. But then as Melina said, yeah, At some point in time, you're sprinting towards the cliff and you just go off the cliff, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, the problem, right, is that losing weight works for a while. Like, strength to weight ratio is real. Gravity is totally real. And I get that. The problem is that you, it's easy to fall into this cycle of losing weight. You climb better. You think that's working you continue to do it you know you lose more weight and like like you said it's like this linear trajectory for a while and it's a little tough because people respond differently like some people are able to continue in that energy deficit and continue performing well for a long time even though they might be doing quite a bit of negative like harm to their long-term health without
1: really realizing it just so I'm understanding kind of the the um, the vernacular here. If we're running in an energy deficit, is that just bringing in less calories than you're burning?
0: Yeah. So if you think about, it's like a scale, right? So one side of the scale is energy in, one side of the scale is energy out. And to maintain weight, ideally that scale is balanced. You're bringing in the same amount as you're putting out. Losing weight, this is a very simplistic picture of this. There's, It gets more complicated, but simplistically if you're consuming less energy than you're putting out you will lose weight and the opposite obviously is true as well over the long term like this is you know this isn't happening like day by day this is like over the course of weeks and months and I think what's really important to point out and because climbing is like a strength to weight thing I understand that that matters and what I really want to point out is that there's a difference between dieting down for a specific amount of time for a certain project or whatever versus being in this like years-long energy deficit. So if we also look at Matt Foltz as an example with this, he is like very strategic in having this training phase where he's slightly heavier because he was bringing in this extra energy to support and optimize the training adaptations. And then strategically, he's cutting just a little bit of weight. And we're, again, we're talking like 2% body weight. For I think for him, it was like two to three pounds. This is not very much. But he's like very strategically doing that for a short amount of a performance phase. So whatever, we're talking like two weeks to two months, maybe.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Matt there because that... Provides maybe not the other side of the coin, but at least another perspective on what controlled or, or healthy building and cutting might look at. Right? Let's let's hear from him, and then I want to get your thoughts.
2: So, um, generally in a training cycle, I I uh, try to gain maybe two or three hmm. percent of, of body weight uh, just to have you know that little make sure that I'm hitting those caloric uh, goals. And then that that's going to give me that extra energy and that extra recovery for the next training se- uh, session. Uh, and then p- before a, a performance cycle, so we're coming into fall now. So I'm doing just a little easy, nice, easy cut into it. You know, maybe just dropping, like I said, about 2% body fat or body weight. So Matt, they're talking
1: about uh, a very, uh, small and controlled build and a very small and controlled taper. As you're saying, we're talking about just a few pounds here. He's got it very, very dialed, of course. And also that performance phase isn't long, right? When we're talking about him cutting, he's talking about getting ready for his fall season. So maybe that's a month, um, certainly not much longer than that. And so that's, that's the difference that we're talking about here, right? Is kind of a performance phase compared to a much longer term caloric
0: deficit. That's a really limited time. To be in a, like, what we could say is an energy deficit versus I think where it really gets to be a problem is when you're in that energy deficit for years. And that's like, that's where we really see the long term negative health effects. But the tricky thing, right, is that not everyone can manage doing that, where like you allow yourself to be heavier for a training phase and then losing a little bit of weight for. performance phase like that's it just is easy to get stuck in that cycle then of being like oh well maybe i just won't gain the weight back this time and i'll just keep getting lighter Uh, and so like that's kind of where it can become an issue if you're and i think where it can be helpful to have then someone with an outside perspective being like no like you're not getting the training adaptations that you were when you were fueling adequately it's important to be getting that those nutrients in
1: yeah, yeah and I think that that certainly seems to be where um disordered eating s- seems to have really taken hold on the sport in in some regard is in competition climbing or at least in speaking with Melina um and and her personal experience but also her take on comp climbing in general and and just talking about how you know, the judgment of when they would all go out to dinner together and people would make comments about what they were eating. And Alison Vest spoke about this uh, as well. And what is it do you feel about comp climbing? Or maybe I'm being overly simplistic here and just saying, hey, this seems to be a concentrated issue in comp climbing. Maybe it's maybe it's in all of climbing, we just hear from the comp climbers more. Uh, wh- what's your take on that?
0: Oh, well, I think partly it's super tough when you're in that social setting like it's so easy to compare yourself to like I think Allison talked about being in isolation and all the girls being in like sports bras or whatever and it's like what do you do like you look around and see what everyone else looks like and it's just a lot easier to compare yourself in that kind of like vacuum setting I guess I don't know I think maybe part of it is that like obviously those comp climbers are training insane hours but to perform you're you know, you're climbing one lead route at a time or four boulders for four minutes at a time versus maybe climbers going outside and doing like a long approach or being on the wall for the entire day, doing a multi-pitch climb. I think it's like, maybe there's, it's like easier to understand that you need to eat more for those like huge days outside versus like fueling for one sport climb at a, or lead climb at a time. But I think you have to look at like the volume of training that they're doing. Like that's still an it's like incredible amount of energy expenditure. But I think again, like kind of going back to the social piece of that. What I think Melina talked about, uh, like decision making when you're in the midst of that eating disorder. Like your brain on an eating disorder does not function normally. Like it doesn't have enough fuel to function normally it affects your ability to think rationally and make good decisions for yourself um, because it just doesn't have enough fuel. And especially when you see people around you also restricting energy or losing weight or whatever, like it's so easy just to go along with that rather than like being able to think rationally about what you're doing to yourself.
1: Yeah. I found that very interesting that, that comment that she made about um, her just not thinking clearly and and how it really seeped into other aspects of her life. Like I think she was saying she made like poor relationship choices and these kinds of things. Like it, it was, it wasn't just, she got worse at climbing, which she did. And she was more injured and had skin issues and, and all sorts of uh, things. But then also it really seeped into the rest of her life. And I believe she specifically spoke about how, when she started working with a dietitian bringing in more fats, I think, specifically to help maybe support brain. I'm sure it was also just more calories in general. But are there certain uh, foods or certain food groups that you see climbers tend to cut out more so than, than they should or, or what you would recommend you know climbers not try to cut out completely?
0: Oh, I think it just depends on the fat of the day. Honestly, (laughs) you hear like the trend of going low carb and the trend of going low fat. Like really, I'd say what people don't tend to cut out is protein, which is good. Like, let's not cut that out. Um, But yeah, I mean, you hear all the time of people doing a keto diet or low carb diet of some sort or low fat diet or not eating processed foods or I, I really think it just kind of depends on like the trend of the day or the week, honestly.
1: Yeah, well, there's certainly no shortage of fad diets. And I want to actually dive into a few of them with you in, in a little bit here to get your take. But I want to close the loop on this section that we're talking about here, which is kind of caloric deficit and body image. And we've touched on body image just a little bit. But some of the other athletes, as you noted, as a theme, have talked about it as well. Alison Vest, spoke about it in our, our chat and has posted very publicly on Instagram about not feeling comfortable for a while showing her stomach in photos and this kind of thing. And I understand, I mean, that's, again, the, the psychological tie-in with diet, nutrition, sports, body image. Um, they're all, it's, it's kind of a web here. And you're not a psychologist, but I'm sure you're quite adept at now working with clients where some of these um concepts and themes come up. And I wonder how we uh listeners, if if we're dealing with similar things ourselves, might be able to manage that or or take a look in a more healthy way uh at at body image in general.
0: Right. I think what can be helpful is looking at it more in terms of like performance goals versus a weight goal. Maybe like it's maybe help more helpful to say, like I want to climb my first 5.13 by the end of the summer, instead of saying, I want to lose five pounds by the end of the summer. I, yeah. I don't know. I think kind of shifting the perspective from a, a weight goal to a performance goal can be helpful. because yeah. um, It's just a different metric to look at. Yeah. I, I think that's a tough question and the tough thing to wrestle with for a lot of people. And it's, I think it's easy to use I mean, climbers use every excuse possible for why they can't do a move or a route, right? Like, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm too heavy, I'm too whatever. Like, it's so easy to just latch onto one of these excuses. And I'm not immune to this either. Like, it's so easy to latch onto these excuses instead of being like, okay, this is a hard move for me. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. It's so much easier just to come down after you fall and be like, well you know, again, if I didn't eat that cookie, like I could have done it. And like, I think it's just easy to latch onto these reasons or excuses for why something is difficult instead of figuring out a way to work around that. Like everyone, everybody, every person has some limitation. And part of the struggle is figuring out how to work around that limitation and maximize on your superpowers, if we want to call it that.
1: Oh, yeah. I think my favorite piece of equipment that I bring to the crack on any given day is my bag of excuses. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, I didn't sleep last night or my kids are bugging me or whatever it might be. It might be that I had three donuts yesterday. And keeping that healthy perspective, I think, is, is really important. And also understanding that our goals are in climbing. And there's a million things that help us elevator up into achieving those goals right? If I'm going to climb a limit project, it's not only if I can lose a couple pounds or gain a couple pounds or whatever it is with regard to diet, but it's going to be like 20 other things as well.
0: Right. There's just so many other factors of like, it's everything that you talk about on the show, right? It's the training, it's the tactics, it's the mental game. Like all of those are just as important as what you weigh on any given day going to try your project.
1: Yeah, and not to mention conditions, humidity, cold, whatever. Yeah, there's there's a million things that go into it. Uh, And and so I think that's also very helpful in keeping perspective when we're dialing any one or, you know, two things up and down. Um, One thing I want to touch on now is is kind of how we're turning the dial the other way, or maybe it's just because I'm currently turning the dial the other way, which is um, ending a performance season, getting into a training season, or in my case, just like a totally screw it and let's party and relax kind of season. And Mo Beck comes to mind uh, with that. And let's hear what she had to say when she's not in comp mode.
0: If I'm in more of an Alpine training mode, I'll I'll eat whatever I want. I'll drink whatever I want. I'll have three beers and a cocktail. Like, that's... I'll go ham.
1: Yeah, so I'd like to get your, your take on this as well, because we've been focusing a lot on strength to weight ratio, which for certain styles of climbing is just far more apparent than others, right? When we're talking about competition or very steep sport climbing, this kind of thing. But when we're talking about big alpine objectives or multi-pitch, trad, real like adventure type stuff with long approaches, then there's a different uh, focus, right? A different caloric focus, but also maybe not as much of a, a an emphasis on strength to weight. So how do you look at that?
0: Well, I think... Again, simplistically to look at it, you can think about kind of that energy balance scale. Um, When she's in alpine mode and you're out in the cold all day, your body is working super hard just to stay warm. That's a ton of energy. Mm -hmm. She's probably like out climbing and moving and dealing with ropes and like just a, a huge amount of energy expenditure throughout the day. So it makes sense then that she would have kind of this higher calorie margin to eat so much more versus being in a comp mode where it's just it's like such a significantly less amount of energy expenditure. And Aiden Roberts has talked about this actually on a different episode as well. Um, where like we, when he's in a training mode, he's eating so much more, you know, it's like a breakfast and then a pre-workout snack and then a snack during a workout and a snack after a workout and then a meal and then a dinner. And like, you just you're using so much energy you have to replace so much more energy versus when he's trying a limit boulder problem like he's doing a couple of goes a day because your skin is so limiting like you're just using so much less energy versus when you're in that training block or versus when Mo is in that alpine season so yeah I and mean, then that's kind of it's a, a tricky thing to understand and to figure out what works for you but It's just looking at that, like how much energy you're using versus in like in one phase versus another phase.
1: Okay, cool. So then to bring it to application here for those of us listening and wanting to know how to essentially move forward either potentially in these different phases or just in our everyday lives, do you recommend tracking calories, tracking macros, tracking calories burned using some sort of fitness app? To essentially find that balance, or is it more by feel?
0: Right. I think it really depends on the person. Like some people, it works really well in their brains for them to track everything, and some people, it doesn't. And some people, that's like triggering for an eating disorder. And so I think you have to be really careful, like individually, with what works for you. I think there's a couple of kind of warning signs that you can watch for. Yeah. With how you feel, like if you, are like super low energy for multiple days or you feel like you're getting injured more often or sick more often or you're not recovering well or there's like some digestive issues like like bloating and constipation. Like there's all these different kind of warning signs that are good indicators of like you're not fueling adequately over time. And also I think just being aware of like you like the days or the phases that you're significantly more active and being intentional about putting in more energy during those phases. It doesn't have to be like super specific. Like Matt Foltz again talks about like he's pretty strategic in this. You know, like he's he is tracking these things more specifically, but that doesn't necessarily work for a lot of people. And I think it can be as simple as just like adding in an extra snack. On the days that you do a heavy training session. And like, yeah, it doesn't have to be like these exact numbers every day. Well, I think that's just as a
1: general rule. I think that's really interesting. Like when I schedule out my week of training, like right now, I'm not in a performance phase. It's winter time. And,
0: and you sent the project.
1: And I sent the proj. Thank you. <laughs> so. Yeah, I've been going ham a little bit, uh, to be honest. The the wheels have come off the bus a little bit here, but that's fine because I also have worked in two days a week of pretty intense kettlebell, just like full body kind of, you know, working on like the antagonist and shoulders, big muscles, legs. I never, you know, like my legs are on fire right now. I'm like, why am I doing legs? I just like how it's just, it was a very kind of simple reminder that you just made there. Whereas like, hey, if you're going to be adding in like an extra... Training protocol on a day, you might want to add in an extra snack. And so, you know, for me, I have I'm very I tend to be very regimen, I'm very type A and like probably a little OCD with regard to like I just like my routines. I kind of eat the same thing most days. But like on those two kettlebell days, maybe I just have a protein shake or a thing of Greek yogurt because I probably am going to need those extra calories. So in that example, we can just use me as as a bit of a case study here. Does it matter when those calories are consumed? Should it be before the workout, immediately after, or is it just like you kind of look at a 24 hour period and just say, you're gonna need a little bit more on that day.
0: Kind of the ideal thing to do is pack as many of those nutrients in around the training session as possible. Like physiologically, your like your muscle cells are way more receptive to nutrients around that exercise window. So you hear all the time, like eat something 30 to 60 minutes after you work out. And that's because like the cells on your muscles are like drawing in nutrients so much faster and they're so much more receptive to those nutrients in that window around exercise that like honestly part of that is helping with recovery so if you think about like your muscle tissue has there's a like certain amount of energy stored within it and as you work out you're depleting that energy store just called glycogen in the muscle the like storage form of carbohydrate in your muscle so as you're working out, you're depleting that glycogen. But then in that little window, after you work out, your cells are more receptive. Like they'll draw up that, those nutrients much more quickly and re, refill those glycogen st- stores faster if you are to provide those nutrients right away. Um, so that, that's just super helpful with if you're trying to train again later that day or the next day. Like just as soon as you can jumpstart that recovery, the better off you are. Um, So yeah, I think it's really helpful to have something before you work out. Like a lot of what I would see with kind of your weekend warrior is people working from nine to five, they eat lunch in the middle of the day, then they go to the gym after work and they haven't eaten anything since lunch and they have a hard time getting through their workout. It's like yeah, like you're not providing any energy for your body to go off of. Um, So just having like a little something before the workout. And then a big thing is if you're you're training for more than an hour, um, you know, if you're in the gym for these like two, three, four hour sessions, you need to be having something in the middle of that as well, Um, particularly like a high carb, quick energy source to continue fueling that session. And then again, something at the end is ideal. So you go to the gym in the evening and train, and then, you know, you're not going to be back at the house and eating dinner until, you know, an hour later or whatever having yeah, like a protein shake and a banana or something in your bag or in your car that you can eat as soon as you're done with your workout is just going to jumpstart that recovery so much faster.
1: Yeah, really easy rule of thumb to follow there. And I appreciate you making it so simple for me, especially because I do have a tendency to overthink things. But if I'm going to have a long training session, a little snack before, a little snack in the middle, and then maybe a big hit of like protein or something afterwards, that makes a lot of sense. You know, what we haven't talked about, Amity, is um, kind of specifically what a good snack might be or a good meal or even a good treat. And this brings to mind Jonathan Segrist, uh, J-Star and I definitely share a sweet tooth, uh, a bit of a struggle with a sweet tooth, if you will, but that's okay in, in moderation. But when it's not in moderation, of course, then there can be
2: a negative impact. And let's, let's hear what Jonathan had to say about that. I do actually notice that when I go in too heavy on the sweets, the inflammation is worse. I, and I for sure notice that, like if I'm training, especially... And I have a few nights where there's like some extra birthday cake laying around, and I go heavy on that. Then I will notice my joints creaking a little bit more than normal. So there's like health reasons why I would tr- want to try to resist a little bit, you know what I'm saying? and i've and I've never been been one to say that you should not have dessert because I think dessert's amazing. so but what I'm trying to say, and this this is what I was getting at is that there are literally days when I'm like, okay, Like, my joints feel a little creaky. I'm really going into, like, heavy project mode. Like, I'm going to try and resist the sweets for, like, a week and just see how that goes.
1: So the best sport climber in the country there um, with a bit of a sweet tooth, which I love because I also have a sweet tooth. So it gives the rest of us humans um, a little bit of hope there. But J-Star also identifying that those sweets have an impact on him, right, with some some inflammation.
0: Yeah, I think it's a... I think that's a great question. A lot of people probably have, because you hear all the time, right, that like sugar is inflammatory. It Yes, it is. It causes an inflammation reaction, um, which inflammation is just your body's defense mechanism, like to harmful or foreign stimulus. So yes, it causes an inflammation reaction, but so does stress and so does exercise and all kinds of other things in your life. So I, I don't know, I kind of think it's helpful just to go back to the simple like everything in moderation like excess amounts probably aren't good for you but like you don't have to completely eliminate everything nice in your diet um which i think was kind of another important thing to look at with jonathan and what he was talking about in terms of like sacrificing like i think it for everyone you kind of just have to decide like what sacrifices you're willing to make and to be an elite or a professional athlete you do have to make some sacrifices. Like, if you didn't, then everyone would be professional, right? Yeah, and it's really about just
1: weighing those sacrifices that we can make, because there's a lot of sacrifices we can make, um, but we don't have to make them all. And and I think, let me grab this quote from from Jonathan, because this is one of my favorite quotes from the entire season.
2: For me, I'm, I'm just going to have some sweets, dude, and it's going to be okay. Like, you know what I mean? It's not going to kill me and There are plenty of other sacrifices in my life that I make to climb well. And it's like, you can't make all of them because at the end of the day, you're going to climb really poorly if you're just like an unhappy person.
0: Right. And yeah, I think it's that's like such a great line. Like you can't sacrifice everything. If you're trying to sacrifice in every aspect, you're going to end up being grouchy all the time. No one's going to want to come belay you because you're grouchy. And (laughs) I just think... Every athlete has to choose which areas they're willing to sacrifice. Like Mo isn't willing to give up dessert for a goal. There's
1: no, there's, oh. there's, there's no goal worth skipping dessert over, I think is what she said. Uh, my other favorite quote of, of the season. But sorry, I cut you off. So yeah, like she she and J-Star are saying, no, we want to be happy people. We're not willing to skip it.
0: But Alex Honnold, yeah, from season one feels that giving up dessert is... I think, I don't know what he said, but like quite a reasonable sacrifice to be a professional athlete. So like, that sounds like but him. there has to be, I'm sure there's something that he's sacrificing, right? Like different things carry different weight to different athletes. And it's up to each individual to kind of decide like which area you're willing to sacrifice in for performance. Sure.
1: Well, sure. So. And, in, and in Alex Honnold's case specifically, I think as he shared in a different chapter of that episode, he's sacrificing top end sport climbing. Like he 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 wants right. 5.15, but he doesn't really want it that bad to give up going out and doing a ton of mileage on the climbs that really bring him a lot of joy. And I think, so maybe joy for him is that. Dessert, not a big sacrifice. Uh, dessert for Mo or for J-Star, or certainly for me, is a sacrifice not worth making. But moderation in general is is a pretty good rule. And I think that's maybe a misconception that um, listeners may have about elite athletes is that they've just got everything dialed all the time and they have bonkers self-control and discipline and focus, which in many regards is is true. Yes, they do. They are elite athletes,
0: but but we're also all human, too.
1: Yeah, you're human and you can take it too far. And sometimes, as <laughs> as Drew Max said in right. season one, sometimes he'll have the send frosty and sometimes he'll have the not send frosty and that's all right.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think kind of a helpful way to think about it can be this like 80-20. Like 80% of the food that you eat is super nutritious and giving you the, okay. the nutrients and vitamins and minerals and everything that you need for performance and recovery. And 20% is like enjoy life and go out to dinner with your friends and have a piece of birthday cake to celebrate your friend. And, you know, like it doesn't have to be this all or nothing all the time, I guess. So
1: speaking of all or nothing and and just kind of it's sticking to this theme of vices for a second, because it's so fun to talk about. Not only am I like craving chocolate right now, but I'm also um, craving a beer because my mind has just gone to Mo Beck, who talked about um, and it was famously portrayed in in the film Stumped of just loving her beers. And I think a lot of us love our beers. We love a send beer or whatever, fill in the blank. And so alcohol, um, maybe not for everyone, but alcohol is, it can be a part of life. It can be part of that 20% of going out and celebrating somebody. But there seem to be some uniquely detrimental effects of alcohol on recovery and this kind of thing that is maybe... Um, more clear now than it was even just a handful of years ago. And so, would love specifically your thoughts on alcohol as it pertains to moderation and as it pertains to just its overall effects on training recovery performance.
0: Right. So, when you drink alcohol, it is processed in your body before any other nutrient. So, like, you know, if you have a beer at the end of the day at the, before you have dinner or whatever, you're, You're just risking filling up on calories that are not providing any nutrition or helping with recovery in any way. The issue with that then is if it comes at the expense of eating a high quality meal of carbs and protein and vegetables because your body is processing those alcohol calories first. Mm -hmm. And if you then don't also supply other nutrients along with that, you're not doing anything to help your body recover. Or prepare for the next day or whatever.
1: So as a good rule of thumb, if nothing else, like if you're going to have that, that beer, um, make sure you're also having it with a burrito or have a, have a protein bar and then have the beer or something like that, essentially.
0: Right. Just like, yeah, make sure you're also getting in the nutrients that are going to help you perform and recover after that. It's not saying you like totally have to cut out alcohol. Like if that is the sacrifice you're not willing to make. That's okay. But like help yourself out by making sure it's not coming at the expense of any other, or like of all your other nutrients as well.
1: Well, that's great because I like my beer and I like my donuts and also I'm not an elite athlete, so <laughs> that's okay. Um, but I think, you know, th- that actually, that, that brings up, um, a little question here as we shift towards application and how all of us now listening, um, us non-elite athletes, or at least most of us are non-elite athletes who are listening right now. Hello, elite athletes who are listening. Um, but for, for those of us who aren't, um, there may be some opportunities here. And um, specifically, I'll, I'll use myself as a case study. And at risk of bringing up kind of a taboo side of the conversation, I, you know, with my beers and my donuts and being, you know, a a guy in his forties, a dad, you know, that works a full-time job in a full-time podcast. Like when I really started focusing on performance, I saw that I could definitely lose weight. And I'm not talking about the Matt Fultz, like we talked on, you know, touched on earlier where he was really fine tuning a couple pounds up when he was building and a couple pounds down when he was performing. I was like, oh, there's a beer belly here. I probably got 10 extra pounds that, for my health could easily go, let let alone you know, climbing performance. And I wonder if that's okay to talk about, or maybe there's just a way for us to talk about essentially, you know, losing weight or body composition, um, where it's more for the the weekend warrior, because most elite athletes are pretty dialed. maybe this isn't where the low-hanging fruit is, but for the rest of us, you know, maybe there is, maybe there's some real opportunity to drop some weight in a healthy way that would be far more impactful on our climbing performance or at least be far easier to do than let's say add 10 or 20 more pounds of finger strength you know if again if you're just kind of carrying around that extra weight like like i was when i started kind of getting more serious about my training
0: yeah i think you're totally right and i think it's it's just having to look at it in context and like there is a healthy weight range and you can be under that and you can be over that for your body type and again everyone's individual with like what their body can handle
1: one determine that or is there like a a, is there a percentage of body fat that's recommended for each age and sex or like like how how do i know what my ideal body composition would be you're typing
0: let me i'm gonna look up the exact number so i tell you the right thing (laughs) i love it um i just don't want to give you the wrong numbers so you can edit this um
1: no i'm leaving all this this is good. People know that you're prepared.
0: Or not prepared. So I have to look it up.
1: Well, I mean, it would be really frigging impressive if you knew like every potential body composition for every age.
0: So what's considered, so it's super different for males versus females, but what's considered like essential fat for women, body fat percentage is 10 to 13%. That like means your physiological functions are like just barely happening like you're still having a period and endocrine immune systems are like still functioning
1: so that's the leanest you would you would want to go like if you're a woman the absolute leanest you would want to go would be 10 to 13 Mm -hmm. below that would be detrimental
0: that's like like really low yeah Um, yeah that seems really low men yeah men is 2 to 5% is what's considered like absolutely essential Oh my god. Yeah, I mean that's this, is, but this like, is like super super low. And again, it's like
1: like there's probably not even elite climbers like like I'm telling you like Tommy Caldwell ain't at 2 or 5%. Like I don't even know if Matt Fultz is and he seems like the most dialed guy out there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's so so low. Uh it's like almost so like bodybuilder
1: really... low, right? Like like when you're right. when you're super shredded cuz you just want to see every muscle fiber in your body.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. So for athletes then what's kind of considered like healthy is for women, 14 to 20 percent, and men is 6 to 13.
1: Yeah, and then, and then, of course, it differs by age as well. I mean, I, I think the, the absolute leanest I've probably ever been in, in at least my adult life was a couple seasons ago when I just ran this experiment where I just tried to absolutely go as shred as possible, right? I mean, for me, within reason, again, as a early 40s dad... I mean, I wasn't able to go too extreme, but I thought I was in like the single digits. And I went, and I did the water test with some friends. We just kind of went out as as a lark to to do this thing. We did the water test and it came back at 14%. And for me, I mean, there's just no way I could even maintain that with my lifestyle. So it's it's really to each their own, right, is to to kind of go down as much as you want. But what we're talking about here is finding the low-hanging fruit. So again, maybe not the elite athletes who are already incredibly dialed to some extent in this, depending on what, what type of climber they are. But for us amateur climbers, us weekend warriors, if I'm a guy in his low 40s and I'm at 25%, then maybe I got 5 or maybe even 10% that I could start to um, explore cutting back on if that's something that was of interest to me and that could be an area where where there's real opportunity for me, but maybe not for some of the guests of our show who are already fairly dialed in this regard.
0: Yeah. And again, I think it's like looking at your your mental space around it and really, really assessing whether or not that is a healthy goal for you and where your body is at. Looking at like, if you were to say you want to lose. 10 pounds, like, why is that the number that you're choosing? Like, is there a good reason for that? Is it, you know, I climbed my hardest grade when I was 10 pounds lighter and I want to get back to that. Or, you know, it's like, we, we choose these like really arbitrary numbers a lot of times of like, I want to lose a certain amount of weight. And I think just being like honest with yourself about like, yeah, what, what your intention is and why that feels important to you.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You're right. It is it is like so arbitrary.
0: I'm curious to see how you edit all this together.
1: I'm I'm going to cut it all out and just talk about cake. No.
0: I think <laughs> as it
1: as it as it pertains to the to this idea of the pendulum, I think that's really good because I want people out there who are listening who may feel like there's an opportunity to cut some pounds to understand like that's okay. If you're good with it, you know. Right.
0: Yeah, I just I think we have to be able to talk about it from every side and like have that conversation be open.
1: I like that. Let's talk about supplements for a second, if we could. Um, There's certainly no shortage of talked about and maybe commonly used supplements within sports, but also specifically within the climbing world. And I'd love to know what you feel are the most effective and beneficial for performance or recovery or overall health, um, specifically with climbers.
0: Yeah, like you said, there's a ton of supplements out there and a lot of people making a lot of money on supplements and... Not all of them are useful. I think there are a few that have good research behind them. And I guess yeah, one that I would note is just a, like a simple protein powder, especially if you are a vegan or at all struggling to get enough protein in your diet through whole foods. A protein powder can be a super easy way to just make sure you're hitting, yeah, like an adequate amount of protein for the day. Um, Or, an easy thing to take to the gym and have after a workout or whatever. Like, that's just a really simple way to get a good dose of protein.
1: And how much protein? Here's the age old question, right? How much protein should we be getting based on our weight or how we want to perform or the way we work out?
0: Yeah, a lot of like the recommendation you hear all the time is 0.8 grams per kilogram. Okay. Um, And that is, well, okay, hold on. That's that is for like a sedentary, person and that's a like pretty old recommendation looking at athletes like high training athletes it's like quite a bit higher like Matt Foltz talked about doing like a gram per pound of body weight which is a lot easier way to think about it in our American Imperial system of measurement a gram per pound is that's fairly high but of uh, like a pretty standard recommendation for a training like that's what we were recommending for. All the basketball players at the phoenix suns
1: yeah well a grand per pound at least for those of us in the us on our backwards ass system of uh not being on the metric system the imperial system i guess i've never i've never described it as the imperial the imperial system sounds fancy but it's not it's dumb but anyway for those of us who are on the system of imperial uh a gram per body pound so if I'm kind of hovering in the 150 to 155 pound range, that's 150-ish grams of protein, which, man, that seems like a lot. I mean, I, like I'm telling you right now, I'm not getting it. And I, I actually try to pay attention to protein. I'll do like a bar or a shake in the day. I do a lot of Greek yogurt. Um, I'm vegetarian, but I still like, I try to focus on protein. I'm probably only getting like 120 grams, I think, maybe on a good day
0: there's a range within that. Like if you're, if you're not, I'd say like anywhere from, I don't know, maybe like point seven five to one gram sure. per pound. So like the easiest thing to think about with protein is splitting it up throughout the day. What the research is showing is kind of the best protein intake for, in terms of like, they call it muscle protein synthesis, but like building and repairing muscle tissue is like, 20 to 30 grams every three to four hours Um, so really splitting it up throughout the day is helpful like your body processes it much better in those kind of doses as opposed to like having a giant steak for dinner got it and again like that that kind of sounds like a lot but a deck of cards sized piece of meat like chicken or whatever any kind of meat is that's like 25 to 30 grams of protein. Or like two eggs is like 14 grams or Okay. A cup of Greek yogurt is like 20 plus grams. Like I think people get more than they actually think they do. Like it sounds like a lot, but I think I think you probably eat more than you think you do. Yeah. In terms of that's protein. Good to know.
1: All right, good. So yeah. moving on uh the supplement wagon. So protein number 1, uh what else do you like?
0: Yeah. Caffeine actually is, I think Tommy Caldwell talked about this in using caffeine as a supplement versus using caffeine every single day. Um, yeah,
1: I'm glad you brought this up because I found that really interesting when he talked about that. Let me grab that quote and we'll, we'll come back here.
2: I have cut out caffeine. I do it on occasion, mostly because I want to be able to use it as a tool and have it work. Like I don't want to become reliant on it. Like if I drink caffeine every day, you just kind of become reliant Mm -hmm. on it. But if I cut it out on occasion, then when I use it again for training, it really helps. Like it allows me to have a really effective like second training session in a day, for instance. And I generally try not to drink coffee in the morning, actually.
0: Yeah, so the the thing with caffeine is if you're dosing it every day, it kind of loses its, its potency or its effect on your system. Which is fine. Like that's not a bad thing if you enjoy your cup of coffee every day. Like that's. I'm not saying not to do that. I enjoy that. Um, but to use it as a supplement, it is much more effective to not have it every day and then use it in that specific time when you you need the energy boost. So anyway, caffeine is like one of the most accepted or like researched effectiveness for supplements. I like that. And so then, and then you would just take
1: that um, a, a little bit before a big send go or a little bit before, uh, uh, max training hangboard day or something like that, essentially you would use it as, as the drug that it is to, to just give you a little bit more energy or a a pop of focus.
0: Right. It's just, yeah, it's a stimulant or like, I mean, Tommy is probably using it on his like triple ups in Yosemite.
1: Yeah. So that's how he does it. Okay, great. Uh, what else, uh, in the supplement world Amity can give us superhuman Tommy Caldwell powers?
0: that I get asked a lot about is collagen. So yeah, collagen is super interesting, just to help understand it a little bit. Collagen is, or I guess first, protein is amino acids, like it's made up of all these amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Collagen is a type of protein, and it's the protein that's found in all of your connective tissue, um, tendons, ligaments, skin, like you have a ton of collagen that makes up your body. Collagen is made up of three specific amino acids. And the idea behind collagen supplementation is that by taking collagen, you are like flooding your bloodstream with those amino acids. So you have like a really high concentration of those amino acids in your bloodstream. So kind of the like the important thing with collagen supplementation is doing the protocol correctly. So it's taking the collagen, those, those amino acids go into your bloodstream and they peak in your bloodstream thirty to sixty minutes after taking them, and then you have to provide this exercise stimulus. So just taking collagen is like sending a letter without an address; it could go anywhere in the world. Taking the collagen and then providing that exercise stimulus, whether that's you know hangboarding or like whatever stimulus you want, like target to target the specific tendons or ligaments. So like hangboarding is a great example because we're trying to make our fingers stronger. Um, Sure. So yeah, providing that exercise stimulus is like putting the address on the letter. You're telling those amino acids in your bloodstream where to go. And your your tendons and ligaments then act like kind of as this sponge. So as you engage them and then release, they're soaking up those amino acids that are in your bloodstream. Got it. Um, so that's, yeah, the important thing with collagen supplementation is kind of following the specific protocol rather than just taking it at any time of the day. But there, the research is young, like there's still several factors that need to be looked at and kind of um, teased out as far as the effectiveness of it. But the studies that have been done show a lot of positive results with collagen supplementation, particularly around um, Injury, like tendon repair from injury and um, yeah, just like helping build more robust tendons and ligaments.
1: And does it need to be a hard workout? Like do we take the collagen and then 30 to 60 minutes later do like some max training or can it be lighter? Could it be just moving around a spray wall?
0: Yeah, no. That's kind of the crazy thing is your tendons respond super quickly or like they need much less stimulus than your muscles do so like a 10 to 15 minute just like doing some hangs doesn't even have to be max hangs like just engaging those particular tissues like 10 to 15 minutes is enough to like direct that collagen where you want it to go and then providing enough rest in between so your your tendons can only like are most responsive if you do that like 10 to 15 minute loading And then they need like six hours before they can really be super responsive again. So providing that rest in between training sessions is super important. Dig it. Okay,
1: great. What else? Any other supplements that are on your shelf that you would recommend?
0: I personally supplement with iron. Not everyone needs to do that. and Before you supplement with iron, you should get a blood test because it is possible to take too much iron. But a lot of female athletes in particular are prone to being iron deficient. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that can help with like a big thing I'll notice is fatigue, like kind of this accumulation of fatigue if I am not taking it for a long time. So that's one that I do. Vitamin D is a really common thing to supplement just because it's really hard to get vitamin D from foods. Uh, So unless you're spending quite a bit of time out in the sun throughout the week, it's pretty Common to be deficient in vitamin D, um, and that's a really easy thing to can get a vitamin D supplement from any grocery store. Like that doesn't have to be super specific.
1: Got it. Yeah. Well, thank you for for breaking down um, some of the common supplements there, and of course that's an evolving landscape. So we'll keep checking in with you on where the science is taking us in that department, and kind of starting to wrap things up here. Amity, is there anything that we haven't touched on up to this point? that you feel is important for listeners to hear or understand.
0: I think I would just re- reiterate, like, don't be afraid to reach out to someone. Like, if you're if you're really struggling with diet or, yeah, you're, like, having low energy or having a hard time getting through a day at the gym or at the crag or, yeah, recovering slowly or dealing with frequent injuries, um, like, reach out to someone. Get some help and... Uh, oftentimes, it's little like simple things. Like oftentimes, it's not big changes that you have to make, but just like a couple little tweaks to what you're already doing can make a big difference.
1: God, you're really helping me with the segues here, and, Amity. So this is that's perfect because a we teed up this this conversation talking about kind of those three pillars, and the, the third pillar that we wanted to focus on was this this theme that you had noticed through our athletes of ultimately for whatever reason them hitting a wall, a plateau, injury, they they decided that they needed to work with somebody who knew what they were doing. So a nutritionist, a dietitian, a coach. And here we are bringing it back. And this is what you do. This is this has become your passion and profession that of course comes alongside your climbing. So what are your goals as a dietitian and can we work with you if we if we need somebody to work with?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think my my goal is to help athletes use nutrition to maximize performance without compromising long term health. Pairing those two things with nutrition, I think, is uh, really important. And what I'm pretty psyched about working with athletes to do, uh, yeah, facilitating like a more positive approach to food and fueling within the climbing community. And again, like from, from every side, like let's open that conversation.
1: That's just so awesome. C- congratulations on what you are building here on the dietitian side and also on the climbing side. I mean, you're just absolutely crushing it out there. So inspiring to see your climbing. So I'm, I'm really grateful and, and um, loved this conversation that we just had here on nutrition, but also really psyched to have you back on to dive in just purely through the lens of climbing if uh, if we can find the time to connect and do that.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to come back on as the athlete this time.
1: And that wraps up our deep dive on nutrition with the stoked and schooled Amity Warm. What did you all think of this one? Do you have any questions? Do you have any comments? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at amity.warm and at the Struggle Climbing Show. Now in a minute, I'm going to share my takeaways from this nutrient-dense convo, but first... Let's give some love to the brands who are making the struggle possible. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official nutrition sponsor of this nutrition episode, and of course the entire season here of The Struggle. From Amity Warm to Jonathan Seagrist, Fizzy Vantage is fueling the best climbers in the world, and their products are the highest quality and most effective around. Try them for yourself. I think you're going to see the results pretty dang quickly. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off at FizzyVantage.com. And if you're looking to level up your gear game, look no further than Petzl. I am so, so happy with their draws, which are tested at over 100,000 open and closed cycles, which is just awesome peace of mind when you are as gripped as I am on your proj. Find all that Petzl has to offer at your local gear shop, or pop over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And lastly, the Struggles Carbon Neutral in partnership with the Honold Foundation, whose mission is to support solar energy for a more equitable world. Y'all pop over to honoldfoundation.org to learn about the amazing projects that they're supporting. Now, I had the absolute joy and honor of getting to climb with Alex again a few weeks ago. And I'm just so continuously impressed with the way he walks the talk with regard to his environmental activism and his lifestyle. If y'all have a few bucks, please consider supporting the work that this fantastic organization and team are doing to make our planet a better place. Now, my big takeaways from this look back on season two through the lens of nutrition are the topic of weight, of course, continues to just dominate the conversation in our sport, but it's really good. I mean, it's good that it is, and it's good to see both sides of the coin here. Understanding where your opportunities lie, whether it's fueling more so that you can train and recover better, or whether it's optimizing body composition through healthy adjustments to diet, there's likely to be some low hanging fruit here even if we're blind to it. Which brings up another takeaway. We don't have to understand all of this ourselves. You can work with a dietitian, a nutritionist, doctor, coach, even a friend to help you see what you might be struggling to identify yourself. And I also really liked Amity's point about setting our goals on climbing objectives rather than arbitrary uh, weight objectives. You know, as weight, higher or lower, is really just one component of many that contribute to success on projects. Lastly, uh, I gotta say, as a weekend warrior, I really loved Amity's 80-20 rule about discipline fueling versus just relaxing and, and enjoying the moments where life serves us cake or donuts. Or donuts and beer. Or donuts and beer and cake. Now I'm hungry. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Y'all, it's just a ton of work pulling together the clips and the format for these capstone shows. I hope you gained a lot of value for it. And if you did, and if you'd like to keep high quality content like this flowing, please consider popping over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to come aboard as a patron. I got some rad perks that are just for patrons, including pro clinics from the biggest names in the sport to help you level up your climbing and your training. Check those out, cancel whenever, no risk, no worries, I love you. The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. The Struggle makes us stronger. See y'all next week.